Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is a special bonus episode of Hex Positive. I'm Brie Nagarin, and today it is too damn hot outside. No, really, I'm in eastern Virginia, and it is hot and humid, and I hate it. It's raining a little, so it's getting better, but still. However, the hot weather doesn't seem to bother my guest in the virtual studio today, partly because he absolutely loves the summertime and partly because he's apparently allergic to shirts. He's a podcaster and author and just an all around fabulous person, possibly your newest TikTok crush. Please welcome Firelight. Welcome, darling. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm wonderful, dear. It's so good to finally have you on the show. I don't think that I could call myself Firelight if I if I didn't like the heat a little bit. <laughs> right? It would it would be very ironic if your name was Firelight and you're like I love but, snow. But January though, Feb- <laughs> February in Chicago, give me give me uh, blizzard conditions at all times, please. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. No. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with your body of work, which is considerable at this point, could you tell the lovely people a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I am the host of the podcast Inciting a Riot, which has been going, um, I would say strong, but it's been going uh, medium since, <laughs> since 2009. Um, it's had a few sort of iterations over the years, but uh, for the last several years, um, I have, uh, it's, it's been a really cool platform to interview interesting people, uh, who challenge the audience to sort of think deeply and critically about interesting subjects. So, um, while it is certainly a society and culture podcast from a pagan perspective, uh, the topics that we discuss aren't exclusively magical, um, and that's because I, I think that uh, we are more than just our spiritual beliefs. I think that our uh, identities are holistic. I think that that um, means that, you know, for people who are coming to this path or who have been here a long time, uh, we're starting to itch for some conversations that are a little bit more than just correspondences and and wand waving. And, I, uh, you know, statistics tell us that people are looking for a version of witchcraft, a version of the occult that is inclusive of society and politics and, uh, you know, the kinds of conversations they're having in their daily life with their friends and family. So that's the focus of not just my podcast, but also my upcoming book, The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, which sort of is is, is an open armed welcome to uh, people who want a a version of paganism that doesn't exclude, you know, science and society and culture and politics and all of that. So uh, that's that's what I try to do on the riot. Fantastic. And I think you succeed with Flying Colors. It's a wonderful show. It's on all the major platforms. If you haven't heard Inciting a Riot listeners, go and find it. You will love it. I promise. It's great. So, so much fun. So many cool voices. Such a really rich, interesting variety of people that you have come through. And it's it's so neat to see all of those different perspectives. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I appreciate that you say that. You've actually been on the show. <laughs> yes, uh, I was briefly know, last year. You were on uh, one of my Southern <laughs> shows. You're a phenomenal storyteller. So, um, oh, I, you know, you. I just, I try to, uh, to, to put the spotlight um, where I, I think it should be. Um, and, you know, oftentimes as a, a cisgender white guy, uh, the, the spotlight sort of gets put on folks like me by default. And I would much rather make sure that the spotlight is on the folks who are, uh, you know, just contributing in all sorts of interesting and dynamic ways to to take our community into the next, uh, in, you know, into the next generation. So this is the question I ask everybody. How did you get into witchcraft in general? I mean, what attracted you to magic? How did you settle on the path where you're at now? Well, I'll be real honest. There was an, a strong interest in the idea that magic was real from a very early age. I was always the, the, the kid that was attracted to the books on mythology and the books on fairy tales and folklore and folk tales and things like that. And uh, obviously, you know, the magic that is just all over the place in those stories, both obvious and not. Um you know, my my favorite time of year was always Halloween. One of my favorite parts of Halloween were all of the books that my mom would get out, my mom and dad. And uh, uh, there was one book on like the history of Halloween that told told me about, you know, the ancient druids. And it was supposed to be, I think, like scary for a kid because they were like, oh, these people did witchcraft and they did magic. And oh, this terrible. Thing. I was like, wait, they did. Wait, how? Wait, what? They really, this was real? What? And, uh, you know, that was, but again, it sort of always stayed in the realm of story or ancient history or something like that. And then one day in high school, I was in band and my first chair French horn player, uh, I was second chair, uh, my first chair French horn player uh, was reading a book by Scott Cunningham called Earth, Air, Fire and Water. And I was like, what is that? And she said, oh, it's reading material. <laughs> and I looked at it and I picked it up and I was like, can I borrow this? She's like, absolutely. And I was, oh my gosh, I was hooked. I was gone. I was all the way over the edge because I was like, wait, magic is real. Real people do this. It's a, it's simple. It's not hard. It's as easy as picking up, you know, sticks and leaves and dirt in your backyard and making magic with it. And that has been sort of a hallmark of the kind of magic that I have been attracted to for the rest of my practice. Um, the, you know, I'm very attracted to the idea that witches are resourceful people, that we have a birthright to magic and, uh, you know, that all people do. And that, it's it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. It, you know, your rituals don't have to be these complex things. It is as simple as, you know, the ingredients in your backyard, the stuff that's around you and the magic that's within you. And that has been, you know, it, it just completely changed my entire worldview. It's so interesting to me that you say that my first book on witchcraft was also a volume of Cunningham, except it was the uh, the Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs. Oh, my gosh. Were you not like I think if I started with an encyclopedia, I wouldn't know which way was up because so <laughs> much of that is just it's just a reference. It's like saying, I mean, you know, obviously you got something out of it and you're here now. I just I look back and think if I had started with that, I I feel like that would be like 
an introduction to English literature, but starting with the dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Just like reading a dictionary start to finish or reading an encyclopedia start to finish or something, which was absolutely something I did as a kid. But um, I, I, uh, th- those kind of books confused me early on. I was like, because I was I was interested in sort of the way that Cunningham, you know, he he was so much more of a storyteller almost. You know, he had a way of writing that was very, um, you know, it, it invited you in. It felt like a story. It felt like it felt like those books of folk tales. Uh, some of those reference books, I tell you, they they still to this day they confuse me. <laughs> me too it it really depends on the one uh but there are some that I just look at them and I'm like yeah clearly this was written for somebody who had some greater context but um yeah I yeah so so many of those books and zero shade they're just I I I get a little confused or maybe overwhelmed by them or or confused Mm -hmm. as to what the purpose of them are because it's like uh uh you know It'll be 250 pages and there's 40 pages of like theory or intro and then uh, 200 plus pages of just like correspondences and mm-hmm. correspondences and stuff. And I'm like, wait, I don't. Where did you get this? <laughs> I have so many more questions and none of them mm-hmm. are answered in this book. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I admittedly, I did have some confusion when I was reading uh the encyclopedia but um for me my my gateway drug as it were into witchcraft was herbal medicine so like somebody handed me this book and i was like wait there's more to this yes give give let me see and then that encouraged me to go and like seek out the context so yeah i mean like like you said like it doesn't matter like how we come into it as long as we're here absolutely he ah Good old Cunningham. It's it's a shame he didn't that he wasn't with us longer to, you know, revise some of his work or produce more of it. Because um, you know, he, he's he's I, a really easy read. I feel like Cunningham is sort of like the pagan community's George Lucas. Um, he He had a massive lasting impact. And some of those early books are absolutely amazing. But then when, like, you deep dive into, like, his peripheral material, like, if you ever read, like, the Book of Shadows, like, all the stuff that was unpublished or all of his, like, half-finished works or something that they pieced together, it's like, ooh, mm, mm-hmm. would we have yeah. thought the same way about Cunningham if he if his books were about, like, how we all came out of silver space needles? Uh, I mean, it's, it's you know, there's there's a bit of Scientology, a bit of ufology, a bit of stuff in there that I'm just like, oh, I don't know that I would have felt quite the same way. So it's, I mean, it's very sad that he's no longer with us, but I feel like his body of work is probably revered as it is because it wasn't ever um, expounded upon. <laughs> he didn't he didn't get the chance to to make his pe- prequels and sequels <laughs> like Lucas did. If you ever uh, <laughs> look look at uh, what what Lucas wanted to do, because he famously um, uh, didn't really have much of a hand in. Uh, the sequel, prequels, prequels, certainly not the sequels, prequels. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't really have a, a ton of uh, uh, hand in that. 
um, or in the the sequels, because he wanted to go into like a deep dive of like the four, like it was going to be like all this uh, subatomic storylines and like the the wills or something like that which were like what he thought were the little people that made up the force or something like that i was like you know we really don't need the force explained we don't i don't need this much explain you are good you're good maybe you made a good thing and back away (laughs) yes far away and that is the thing with with storytelling especially in fantasy science and science fiction you either explain everything or explain absolutely nothing to be effective most of the time. And yes. when when he explained absolutely nothing, it was perfect. It was. I even talk about that a little bit in the book where I'm just like, you know, when the force was just sort of a force and it was everywhere and it was all around us and some people could just access it more than other people, that was all the explanation we needed. I didn't need, you know, the midichlorians. I didn't need mm. midichlorian counts. I was like, I've seen Dragon Ball Z. I know how this works. <laughs> I don't need to know, like, your blood count. Like, it's just so weird once you start getting into, like, blood quantum in the prequels. It's just, I, I'm like, we didn't need this. And it's just so weird. <laughs> it's just so, I'm like, why? Why did we need this? We didn't. Yeah. We didn't need it. Yeah. And it's like, why? why are you trying to like scientifically quantify this thing it it's it's making it less fun yeah we're okay with space wizards i'm good with that yeah totally okay with space wizards million percent here for the space wizards (laughs) uh where were we i forgot we were talking about books (laughs) right so you got into this through uh through cunningham's Elemental texts. Uh, where did you go from there? You know, I, I, gosh, I started just doing the thing that I think everybody does. I read everything. You know, I read DJ Conway. I read uh, 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 Dorothy Morrison. I read Raven Wolf. I read, you know, Uncle Bucky's Big Blue Reader. You know, you just do the thing that you're supposed to do or that you think you're supposed to. You're just, you read everything. You read absolutely everything. Um, at the time, there wasn't quite as much out there <laughs> as there is now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just became a voracious reader. And over time, that that reading, uh, you know, dried up because a lot of what was out there was very, very, you know, 101, 102. Um, and I started realizing that there was a lot to witchcraft and paganism that that could be built upon by reading something else, you know, art history and philosophy and, uh, you know, learning about other religions and learning about other, um, uh, you know, folkloric traditions and things like that. Um, and and then I got to a point where I was like, you know, I need community. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we there, there's a lot of focus and Cunningham is a, a big part of that. Cunningham and Ravenwolf in the 90s are a big part of creating this sort of solitary focus in witchcraft. But at the end of the day, people are a, are a um, communal species. We need other people, uh, not just for community, but just to, to grow, to learn, to, to, to exchange ideas uh, and to challenge our own ideas and thinking. Um, and luckily, uh, around the time I graduated college, uh, I found podcasts. And eventually made one. <laughs> uh, 
and and you know started learning both uh, through books and through other sources and uh, and through podcasts and sort of building out community from there. That sounds like a really good start. You know, it's, I, it's very I, it's very well uh, well rounded and very grounded. And I like what you said about uh, studying other subjects in order to have that broader view. That that's something that I wound up doing in my early days as well. Uh, except instead of podcasts, I had Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a scary minefield. Um, oh, it oh, was. Oh, uh, minefield is actually exactly how I describe it. Oof. Uh, you know, I, I think that it was because of those the the my big takeaway from Cunningham was always that just magic is natural and magic is the world around you and magic is inside of you. So I've never really viewed magic, the practice of magic, as this like difficult, esoteric concept you know, this niche bit of knowledge or something like that, it has always seemed so open and so simple to me. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I've i always, my flavor of paganism has always been a, a simple reverence for the natural world, the cycles of things, how things work, how the world around us works, how our bodies work, um, you know, what space is, you know, and all of that kind of thing. It, and and uh, so my version of the occult, my version of of paganism uh, and and my understanding of magic has never really been separate from science or natural science or the natural world. Um, so, you know, I, I got so much out of you know, crystal magic by learning geology, basic geological concepts, which is why I'm so glad people like uh, uh, Kathleen Borealis are, are out there to to sort of show us how we can marry natural science with magic and and uh, spirituality. Um, and sort of, you know, that's that's always been my approach to things, uh, which is why I think that my spirituality grows, my paganism grows, my relationship to magic grows when I learn more about psychology and sociology and natural science and and astronomy and things like that you know i i think that they co they they exist together they coexist uh at all times um i i see no separation between the two um so yeah i think uh and and that's why so many of the resources that i recommend and a lot of the books that i recommend are sociological texts or books just simply about rocks and learning about plants and things like that you know it's because <laughs> i'm like okay well if you're interested in this go read about plants don't read about you know the the magic like learn about both learn learn about both at the same time um you know and it you you said earlier that that uh you know sort of my upbringing was well-rounded i think that we forget we sort of have this like not reverence, almost this fetishization of books and of authorship inside of the pagan community. Um, and we forget that so much of our teaching and so much of our history is oral. Uh, you know, we really poo-poo on people, especially younger folks who tell us that they've learned their basics on YouTube or tell us that they learned their basics on a podcast or on blogs or things like that. And I'm like, you know, I get poo-pooing that to an extent. I mean, I get it, you know, that there are some concept, you know, because there's sort of this idea that, oh, you know, they just they could be learning anything and there's no fact check or anything like that. But I'm like, there's not much more of a fact check in most of the witchy books out there. 
Um, so, you know, we have such a rich history of oral tradition and of teaching one another and of community that I, I think that a proper pagan education is you know, yes, has books, yes, incorporates, um, you know, sort of formal training as as much as any of this can be formalized, but also learning from one another and sort of experiencing one another's gnosis and uh, our trials and errors. I think that if we ignore that, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And especially with how much the community has changed and how rapidly it's changed, you know, even even just in the past five years, you know, we are so we we are in such a different place than we were, you know, back in, in, in 2016 and 2015. You know, things have moved so quickly because so much has changed in the world around us. And, you know, books are great and all, but, you know, they're also very staid. They don't really change with the times unless somebody publishes like an update or a new edition. And the great thing with uh, the oral tradition you were mentioning with with YouTube, with podcasts, with direct community, Facebook chats, whatever, uh, Discord servers now for witches, which is awesome. I'm on the one for the Nerd and Tie podcast and we have so much fun. Uh, it's that the the information is coming direct from other people's experiences like you said, and experiencing each other's gnosis and experiencing each other's knowledge uh, is so important because then you have a personal context and that broader view. And the way that the community communicates really is shifting to this more immediate, more digital, more oral sort of phase. We're moving away from getting all of our learning from books and all of our communication from written sources, and we're moving toward this sort of online community anyway. So why shouldn't we move our education there as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that I think that the best kind of modern magical education is a holistic one. I think mm -hmm. that it's one that includes learning from others. I think that it's one that includes challenging your ideas. But I also think that it's one that is inclusive of, uh, you know, challenging conversations that aren't really about magic, but they're about magic. <laughs> You know, about the the uh, political history, the sociological history behind certain concepts and ideas, uh, you know, the syncretization or the religious evolution of how we came to form this community and why it was formed the way that it was formed um, and how the ideas and practices that we believe and practice came to be and whether or not those ideas and practices should continue. Um, I think all of that is a brilliant thing that we're doing. A lot of people bemoan that kind of discourse, but I'm glad it's happening. Some of it's cringeworthy, but we were all cringeworthy. <laughs> you know, my my show has been around since I was a senior in college. My gosh, my first several years are just nothing but cringe. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we, we've all had that phase. We've all been young and dumb and thought we knew everything, and partly because this is a uh, decentralized uh, faith, this is a decentralized tradition, there's no governing body, there's no pope, <laughs> there's no witches council to say that we're doing something wrong. Um, so at times, of course, you know, some of us make leaps in logic or big demands or things like that, but for the most part, the community as a whole tends to find its level. 
And I, I'm I'm glad for that, and I'm glad to see that that's how uh, our education is uh, it, it seems to be transforming. It's less rigidly book based and more holistic, and that's a good thing. I think so too, and I think you know, like back in the late '90s, early 2000s, kind of learning from and then unlearning Silver Raven Wolf was kind of a rite of passage for a lot of us. And I think now, like, learning some of the short-form, cringy, like, I have only gotten my information from infographics type stuff that's out there right now that we all kind of go, ooh, honey, um, maybe maybe broader view, maybe critical thinking, just, just put, put that down. Um, mm-hmm. I think learning and unlearning that way of looking at witchcraft and at looking at the witchcraft community is going to be that rite of passage for the current crop of witches. Sure. I mean, you know, when you're talking about learning and unlearning, um, the thing that that comes to mind are two conversations. One is, is there some kind of claim being made? You know, is someone saying that they are going to get in touch with your dead Aunt Sally or your dead spouse or whatever? Is someone claiming that they can heal you of a physical ailment? Is someone saying that they are going to sell you uh, a magical tincture? Or the big thing around TikTok right now is people are doing weight loss spells and, you know, that kind of thing. Is there a claim being made? Um, And then on the flip side, and sometimes these have to do with claims and sometimes these just have to do with ideas and information that we publish or, or pass around, um, you know, is is what is the potential for harm? Uh, is is there a potential for harm either culturally? Are we taking from an oppressed group? Um, are we uh, recommending ideas, methodologies? Uh, are we selling products that are potentially harmful, that are potentially dangerous, um, but we get away with because we call it magic and we call it spirituality and therefore it's, you know, we we don't check it. Um, you know, we don't fact check these things. And when when someone tries to fact check it, we, we you know, claim religious persecution. Uh, and I, I think those are the, the two big things, you know, is there a potential for harm? Um, and is there some kind of objective claim being made? Other than that, you know, sure, there's some cringy moments and yes, people say some dumb things and every now and then someone tries to hex the moon. But at the end of the day, someone trying to hex the moon doesn't there's there's not a ton of potential for harm there. You know, it's silly. It's funny. It gave us all a good laugh. But there's not a lot of potential harm there. You know, the moon is not going to fall out of the sky um, and those kids aren't doing anything <laughs> dangerous. It's It's just it's hilarious discourse for the sake of discourse. Mm -hmm. But I think that we do, you know, still maybe have some room to have conversations about harm and claims. Oh, absolutely. There's always more room for that. And I think also that a very important part of any education or any journey is having those initial mistakes, is having those moments where you, you look back however much time later and go, I screwed up where you, where you learn things or you think, you know, things where you make claims of stuff that maybe isn't altogether. Okay. You know, you, you have to mess up in order to learn, you know, you, you can't just go through and expect yourself to be perfect the whole time. You know, that's all part of, of, of learning and educating yourself and growing is learning where that line is. And learning from your mistakes. 
And the thing is, we don't know what we don't know. I'm not going to mm-hmm. punish ignorance. I'm not going to call out ignorance. If you're ignorant on something, that's fine. We've all been ignorant at some point. Uh, once you become aware of your ignorance, um, it's your duty to learn and to better yourself and to learn better and do better. Um, you know, I, I talk in my book multiple times that I both began my journey with Cunningham, but I'm also now critical of Cunningham's work. You know, there were parts, you know, you mentioned that you started off with some of his encyclopedias. Well, there's some information in his encyclopedias that I just, they don't really hold up under modern scrutiny. You know, there's some claims and things in there that I'm like, "Mm," you know, that there's some information left out here that, that might be crucial, especially in a book where you recommend someone ingest something or eat something or comes into contact with something or makes a tea out of something. And it's like, but maybe there's some context and information and, and uh, that that's missing from here that, that uh, uh, we, I would want to see in a book published in 2021. Um, so, you know, I, I think our duty just as we age and as we grow is to learn better, do better, and then, you know, look back on our journey with, uh, a loving but critical eye, uh, and then to pass along that information to uh, a newer person just starting out. You know, sometimes it's okay to say, well, I recommend this book, but you might want to watch out for X, Y, and Z. And if you have any questions, you can ask me or here are some good resources that fill in some of those gaps. I think that's totally fine and valid. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I, I definitely relate to the whole, like, the constant mentions of mugwort tea in the later new age books, it's like, yeah, just dump this mugwort in your tea and you'll, you'll see spirits. You'll or be more baths. powerful. Oh yes. My gosh, people advertising mugwort baths. And I'm like, <sighs> what, what's happening? I said, oh, are there, are there warning labels on this? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Are there warning labels on this? Honey, you can't Honey. just sell people mugwort tea, mugwort baths. Uh, you know, and I've talked to people that sell some of this stuff and I'm like, well, are there going to be any warnings on there? Well, why? Well, be- because mugwort is an abortifacient. It 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 can either, you know, be initiate contractions. It can cause co- it can jumpstart a period. It can do all sorts of things. Um, it can be dangerous if you're a person that can get pregnant. If you're a person uh, with a vagina, you might want to know that there is there's mugwort in this. And I've been told by some people that sell it. Oh, well, there's not enough mugwort in there to cause harm. I'm like, well, there's not enough. If there's not enough mugwort in there to cause harm, then there's probably not not enough mugwort in there to cause like anything positive either so why is it in there <laughs> like what what it's 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 flavor text sure uh, like what's uh, that in there for like if it's mm-hmm. not enough in there to do anything then isn't that a little false advertising <laughs> yeah if if it's not enough to, if it's not enough to actually be a dose then what is it for right but and also, even even if it's not enough. like a there not Sorry. being enough in there, it's like you are not a diagnostician. You, yes. You are not prescribing anything. I mean, you don't know so you don't know the person that's buying it. You don't know their uh, height, their weight, their medical history. You don't know what other uh, 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 medications they may be on. You don't know their their health background. Like you can't say. I mean, it's a potentially dangerous substance, and you're not putting warning labels on on the things that you're selling, and you get away with it because it's oh well it psychic and if you bathe in it you're going to be super psychic and it's like well okay but if you bathe in it you might also cause a miscarriage so just like (laughs) something you might want to (laughs) know 
Oh, yes. And I mean, even even if there's not like any uterine related, you know, problems that somebody might have, people can still be incredibly allergic to the stuff. Like if you are if you are allergic to ragweed. Yep. You are probably allergic to mugwort. If you and get I believe bad it's uh, in the spring, you have a very yeah. high likelihood of being pretty dang allergic to mugwort. And, mm-hmm. and I think you know, it's carrots again, as well. If there's not enough in there to cause an uh, allergic reaction in someone who probably should get an allergic reaction, I'm like, then why are you advertising it as mugwort bath salt? Why don't you just say you set you whispered the word mugwort into some Epsom salts three times? <laughs> and- <laughs> And called it a day and charged $25 for, you know, a, a 50 cents worth of Epsom salts. Like, just like, just say what it is. Say what's in the package. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you don't know, say that too. Like, oh, I didn't know that Mugwort did that. Okay, one, say that. And two, maybe stop calling yourself an herbalist. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you oh, read Cunningham's yes. Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs doesn't make you an herbalist, baby doll. <laughs> oh my God, yes. I've I have had so many arguments with people, so many. Just about, you know, oh well, I've read this book and I've read that book and I've read these magical texts. So I could totally be an herbalist. I could yeah, be a no, natural that's not healer. What an is. That's no, not that's what not an how this works. Is. I know one herbalist. <laughs> I, I know yeah. one and she has a doctorate. So yeah. like an actual legit doctorate, not one of those that she sent away for on the internet, mm-hmm. like went to school, <laughs> got a doctorate, practices medicine. Like I, I yeah, I, I know one, uh, but I know a whole lot of people in the magical community that call themselves herbalists that are not. So the, the discrepancy there, the disparity there is, is noticed and noticeable. Ooh, Yes. And I mean, it's one thing if you want to do stuff for yourself, that's fine. Do whatever, because the only person you're responsible for is yourself then. But like the second that you start putting that onto other people, whether it's people in your household or your friends and neighbors or your coworkers or people on the Internet or your pets, then you have a responsibility to, you know, forgive me, have your shit together and Mm -hmm know what you're talking about and i mean you do not have to have like a full doctorate to be an herbalist but there are certification courses that you should take if you're going to be making any kind of recommendations to other people on a serious basis and there are very good reasons for that not just for public safety but also because you can get sued honey you can get sued you can go to jail yeah 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 and those the courses that make you an herbalist aren't something you take in a single weekend at Holiday Inn or at your local nope. witchy shop. It's it's not. It's a course. It's a legit like school. Like you go you go to school for it. <laughs> there's yeah. there's school. There's certifications. There's testing. There's lab time. There's all sorts of stuff. And it's not it's not something you you spent a hundred dollars at Holiday Inn on a weekend and now you're an herbalist. Sorry, that's just not how this works. Mm-hmm. But again, those are the two questions. Is there a claim yes. being made? Is there a potential for harm? Um, yes, there's a claim being made. And yes, there's a potential for harm. So, you know, red flags should should go up. You should you should start, you know, catching some things in that filter of yours. You should maybe say, oh, maybe I need to ask some deeper questions and possibly even look outside of, of 
magical books for some some in practical information about what it is that I'm reading so that I can, uh, you know, be a better steward of this knowledge. Exactly. And perhaps more importantly, look outside your own echo chamber. You know, don't just 100%. talk to people who are going to, you know, you can't just talk to folks who are going to tell you what you want to hear. You got to talk to folks who might disagree with you because they might have something to teach you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you explore a lot on on your podcast, on Inciting a Riot. You have, like we said, this wonderful variety of unique voices on all sorts of topics. And there's there's so much tea. It's delicious. <laughs> it, and it's so nice to see that deeper discussion as opposed to, you know, short form conversation via video or Twitter or infographic, you know, those are helpful, but only up to a point. So how did you get started with a podcast? Oh, gosh. Well, that was um, 2009. I was I was listening to just a lot of different kinds of podcasts. And at the time, I think that I did it the way that some people used to start YouTube channels. And I, I think I just kind of thought of it as like a uh, an early sort of diary almost. I mean, it was a fun, fun, silly thing that I did using knowledge that I thought I knew, <laughs> information I thought I knew, um, you know, and uh, uh, it, it was me and a really old MacBook and I was sitting really, really close to the uh, built-in microphone. <laughs> um, but, you know, over the years, the, the show evolved. Uh, the show evolved because... I, well, I remember wanting to make the show because I was listening to a number of podcasts and one of the big hot topics of the day was The Burning Times by Margaret Murray, by oh, Margaret boy. Murray, but it was, it was The Burning Times myth um, and the idea that nine million women were burned at the stake for practicing a real, uh, real line of witchcraft that comes from an unbroken line dating back to ancient Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the funny thing was, a lot of podcasts at the time would talk about it. And I feel like if you squinted and you read between the lines and you had done some reading outside of the New Age section of the bookstore, you knew that the hosts of those shows knew that this wasn't real. But also nobody was willing to say that they would always, well, you know, the concept of the burning times and the burnings, you know, da, 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 da. And we are the granddaughters of the witches you couldn't, I don't know, make s'mores out of or whatever. Um, and I, I was like, you know, I don't know a lot, but I know that if if something is not true, but if you never actually say it's not true, I don't think that we're helping advance discourse, you know, like it's it's like if you know your friends are going to go to a certain spot and there's a whole bunch of like buried mines in that spot and you know that and you're like. So are you guys sure that's a good idea? Yeah, no, we're excited. It's going to be great. It's going to be a fun Friday night. Uh, we're going to go make out down at uh, Blow em Up Point. Okay, cool, cool. Well, um, have fun at Blow em Up Point. Okay, yeah, no problem. But like, if you know that Blow em Up Point is filled with mines and you never actually say that out loud, there's a big potential for harm there. 
<laughs> and also, aren't you sort of participating in that harm a little bit by not not saying anything? Like, if you know better and you're not helping other people learn that information and they just keep passing it around like it's real or like it's a good idea, aren't you kind of like tacitly approving the bad information? Uh, and I just, you know, I was like, I feel like someone somewhere should probably say, hey, this is this is not true. Like, OK, I mean, I know we're all like thinking it, but if we say it out loud, it's OK. Like it's it's OK if we call them. Uh, uh, it's OK if we call a myth a myth. You know, it's OK if we call something that has been debunked debunked. Um, and apparently that was controversial because people were like, no, no, no. But Margaret Murray and we've been doing this for so long and she was Dr. Margaret Murray. I'm like, yeah. Well, I mean, but here's all these other doctors that <laughs> said it was all made up. <laughs> and she was very quickly debunked after yeah. that book came out. Like, like know, we, this is are, not news. We are cherry picking information and this isn't like we we just learned this. This is decades debunked. It's just not as fun to talk I mean, you know, it's not as fun to talk about I guess reality as it is to talk about the the fun story that we all tell ourselves. And I just, so that's sort of where the riot started. I was like, you know, there's just a lot of stuff in our community that once you've been in the community a while, you come to find out. And sometimes you come to find out that information through very, very hard learned lessons. You learn uh, which kinds of teachers are fraudulent and the kind of people that want to take your money or time or prey on you sexually or prey on other people sexually. And, um, you know, the the kind of people that, that want to make you afraid just because, I don't know, I guess they don't have anything in their lives or something. And, and freaking you out is, is what gives them joy <laughs> or whatever. And I uh, you know, the, the people that try to call themselves healers and, and, and you know, pass things off as traditional medicine that are literally selling you poison or literally selling you nothing, like nothing. Um, and you're buying into it thinking that it's going to cure you of something, you know. I, and when you've been in this community a while, you know that it's not true. But for some reason, we're like, but if we say that out loud... I don't know, something bad's going to happen. I, I feel like there is this unsaid fear in the community that if we poke at anything, if we say that anything isn't true, or if we say that anything is problematic, then somehow the entire house will fall down. Like the entire house of paganism will fall down. And I'm like, this is not... This is not cards. You know, if you take a piece away of it, it's, it's, this isn't pie. And if it is pie, you can always bake more pie. You know, I mean, pie is not the finite resource that you seem to think that it is. You know, we, we can just get rid of bad ideas that don't work uh, or bad ideas that are outdated or, uh, or, you know, that were based on information that has now been updated by better science or better uh, historical understanding or better cultural, better cultural conversation, you know, just sort of as these things evolve, so too should our spirituality. We're a young group. We're a young group. I mean, the community is certainly less than 100 years old, you know, somewhere maybe around 70 or 80 years old, at, at, if we're being honest. And the interesting thing about having done my show for as long as I have is 
my show's been around for about one seventh of the time as the modern pagan community. <laughs> and it's just so interesting seeing how much we've changed and how much we've grown and how more open we are as a community to have some of these tougher conversations. Um, and I'm certainly glad to have been a part of that at times. And, you know, at times I've I've probably been the on the wrong end of some of those conversations. I know that I've certainly been wrong a number of times. And that's great because that meant I learned uh, that meant, means I learned something. Um, but I, I, I think that uh, I, I think it's just I think that our community is a, is is in a good place, and I think that we're poised to uh, to to go forward um, in a place of uh, you know sort of respect and open conversation and willing to be wrong and learn from that wrongness. For real, I mean, I, I understand completely what you're saying with this. Uh, you know, for the longest time, people didn't want to be on the wrong side of a conversation. Um, partly because, you know, there, there was sort of a stigma against, you know, well, there's, there's some things that we just take for granted and we just don't discuss them because they were these big prevailing ideas. The s'mores line damn near gave me a fit. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There, there is sort of a, a modern mythology that's been built around the community and it's painful to have to deconstruct parts of that when we get new information but you know growing takes courage and growing is painful but it has to be done um even like oh geez like maybe seven eight years ago when i first really got into the 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 tumblr pagan community um we had these quote-unquote big name pagans that were part of the larger you know discourse i guess on there Mm -hmm. and to go against what one of them was saying was anathema because, you know, immediately you would have all these people jump on you. You know, you could be objectively correct, but it wouldn't matter because all of these other people who are like, no, 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 you can't say that because this person says that you're wrong. And then you have to deal with trolls and then you have to deal with, you know, hateful comments and, community shame and so nobody wants that um even still you know the the fear of being ridiculed by one's community is a very strong deterrent to you know opening your mouth when you see something being said or done that you're like um that's not cool maybe let's not and it takes a lot of courage to be able to stand up and say hey let's examine this so it's it is very nice that that is becoming the prevailing culture that we are more willing to listen to each other and more willing to question what we have been taught and what we've learned rather than just taking everything for granted. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, you know, we we've had for the longest time um this sort of fetishization of authorship and of books in the community, mostly because I think that because we are a decentralized community, there are so few ways of sort of sort of conferring authority, I think. Um, and I get that. So I, I sort of get why, well, you published something, so you must know more than the rest of us, or you must be better at this than the rest of us. And I, and I get that. I mean, I get that. And I thought that for a really long time. And then I started 
talking to some of these authors and sort of learning behind the scenes. And I'll never forget when I interviewed Dorothy Morrison years ago, and she said the reason why she left her original publisher was because she was really tired of sending in manuscripts that were then just sort of edited by the other authors and sent back to her as books that didn't even look a thing like the book that she had written um, and included information that she didn't believe and, and you know, sources and claims and stuff that she didn't like and had to be formatted in a certain way. And it's like, well, if they're doing that to someone like her, someone that I considered, you know, one of the big name pagans, one of the people who sort of created modern pagan discourse, I'm like, then what's going on with the rest of these books? And why do they all sound alike? And why are they all in the same format? And then that made me start really questioning, you know, how are the things that we're buying written? How are they edited? What does the publishing industry look like around that? You know, who is the one publishing this? Who are the people deciding uh, what pagan discourse is? Is it the authors or is it the people that are buying the books? Is it the people that are uh, deciding what books to buy and what is available for you? And in a lot of ways, you know, I think that we really focus, um, you know, we think that so much of modern pagan discourse, or at least for a very long time, so much of modern pagan discourse came from books. Um, and so much of the ways that we thought about things came from books. And I'm glad to see that changing. I'm glad to see it sort of becoming this hybrid model between books and blogs and oral tradition, either via podcasts or, uh, you know, YouTube videos or, or the like. Um, even TikTok to an extent, because it, it means that there's um, it, it means there's, there's a more open access to what paganism is. It means that people are sort of reclaiming what paganism is and should be, because for a very, very, very long time, I don't think people realize a very small number of people decided what paganism is. You know, it's the people that bought the books and distributed the books. And and that's, you know, a handful of people that work for uh, two publishers. Um, and and I, I think that it's good that we have more voices that are not, uh, you know, heavily edited, heavily um, screened to be uh, to be marketable because. Uh, I think it allows us to 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 get back to what paganism should be, um, and it it allows the community to sort of reclaim itself, and I think that's a great thing. Most definitely, and I've I've had my own run-ins and my own rants about the uh, the Llewellyn House style, and you know how that's been problematic. But that is a topic for another day. It is, um, and the thing is. I, I just, <laughs> Because I know it sounds like I'm just like, oh, Llewellyn or, or Wiser are bad. They're not. Um, no, no. I, I think that that we just need to remember that they are businesses mm -hmm. that have a bottom line that they need to meet. And so, you know, why do they publish what they publish? Well, because that that is what sells and that's what keeps their lights on. Why do they have the formula that they have? Because that formula sells, you know, but why do people keep publishing with them? Because a lot of what we publish, a lot of what we write probably wouldn't get picked up by a major publisher, you know, and I, exactly. get, that I, I get that I can say that <laughs> <laughs> when my book was picked up by a major publisher. So I, I realize that I sort of speak from a, a place of privilege here, but I also recognize that we need our niche pagan publishers 
um, you know, we need them to continue publishing some of these smaller voices, some of these books that are going to get print runs of a thousand copies at most, you know, but we need that. We need that because that is where our community is going to continue to exist and thrive um, and, and continue to give voice to folks who may not get a voice elsewhere. Uh, it, I, I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't have those uh, publishers, but you can, you can critique something you love. You can want something that you love to be better. And I think sort of that is what I hope people's takeaway is from any conversation around uh, critique of, 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 you know, the current pagan publisher landscape is, is we can critique it while embracing it, loving it and wanting to, it to be better. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And what we also have to remember is that without these pagan publishing companies, we wouldn't have most of the pagan literature that we have because 100%. for a very a very long time they were the only two 100 percent who, who would publish that stuff the major publishing 100%. companies wouldn't touch it yeah wanting so, wanting to do away with Llewellyn or Wiser would simply be no you know pulling the ladder up behind you it would mm -hmm. you know it would be it would be burning down uh an entire rich history of modern pagan discourse and that is absolutely not what i believe in um i just simply think that as we continue to learn better and do better as a community we can we can begin to have uh lovingly challenging conversations about what is published who is publishing it how it's being published how it's being marketed are we protecting authors what kinds of information are we publishing? How is that information being vetted? You know, what kinds of claims are being made in some of these books? Are we still publishing sort of medicalized magic? Um, you know, is there ableism in it? Is there racism in it? Is there homophobia in it? You know, those kinds of things. We can have a version of modern pagan discourse and modern pagan literature that is inclusive of the kinds of conversations that we're having in our everyday life, which is, you know, one of the things that I hope that I accomplished in my book. Having read parts of it, I, I definitely think you did. And right before we uh, we, we move into that, because I definitely want to talk about this book, it's fabulous. Um, you mentioned before there's sort of a, a fetishization of authorship. I think in our community there's also sort of a fetishization of infallibility, where oh, it's like, 100%. oh, oh, thank goodness, this one person is unproblematic, and the second they do something that's the least bit problematic. It's, oh no, we've been betrayed. And it you have to realize there's no such thing as a perfect or unproblematic person. Everyone's going to do something problematic. Everyone's going to mess up. And you have to take that holistic view. You have to go, okay, here's some good things this person's done. Yeah, they did this maybe one or two things that was objectionable. And if it wasn't horrendously objectionable, then maybe we Look at where they're coming from. Are they coming from a place of privilege? Are they coming from a different viewpoint? You know, is maybe this particular source just not for me? And we have to let things go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Sometimes, you know, 30 years of doing something is is long enough. <laughs> oh, there's a rant there. I'm just <laughs> going to put it on the shelf for another day because, yeah. But uh, going on to your book, a Dab The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, it's about to be published. It's going to be on the market really soon. Now, <laughs> I can only imagine how excited you are. <laughs> are you, you know giddy? what's funny is, I, I mean, I am, but almost, it's, 
<laughs> your excitement meter is it gets burned out after a while i think to be perfectly honest because like I, this this book was written in december <laughs> i mean like it was it's been done since like december i mean there's been edits and tweaks and things to it but it's like uh you know this was written so long ago uh and you you've had i've had dozens and dozens of conversations about it so it, it almost feels weird that people are only just now about to get it because i'm like wait is it hasn't this already been out i'm like it's my own book i'm like isn't this already out <laughs> it's like uh you know um when you when you see ads for like a movie and then you're like oh wait didn't i thought that was already out no 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 it didn't come out till like next year wait what I've seen ads for this for yes. like years. <laughs> I, I was just about to say, it's like all the 2020 movie ads yes. where everything came out. And then now we're seeing those same trailers and going, wait, wasn't that out last year? Right. Oh, that's right. Nothing came out last this. year. I swear I already watched this. It's yes. like, no, I, ha, haven't I already published? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so glad that it's about to come out. And yes, I'm very excited, but it is yes. a little bit of a, a weird space because uh, we have been so, it's good that you bring up the pandemic because most of this, you know, I didn't have a traditional publishing experience. Normally you would get, uh, you know, you would go out and you would meet your editor and you would meet your uh, publicity team and you would meet your, you know, your whole crew and uh, uh, sort of have in-person meetings and you would lay out what the book is going to be and yada, yada. And all of that for me was like emails and zoom and, and that kind of thing. And it's just so, it's just been this weird experience. I'm like, what is time anymore? <laughs> what is time? What is I'm still, time? I'm time still trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Oh my God. And it, after a certain point in time, it's got to be like, okay, when's the other shoe going to drop? Can we just get this over with? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I've already pre-ordered a copy and you were good enough to forward an advanced copy for me to check out. Thank you. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely blown away. This is witchcraft for the modern witch in every sense of the phrase. And I said it before the call. I'm going to say it again now. This is going to be a bestseller. I really think so. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I appreciate the the compliment and the vote of confidence. <laughs> let let us speak it into existence. Let us go and pre-order and order copies and give it good reviews because this book is awesome. And well, thank it's, you. It's, it's going to do well. So I I can only imagine that coming from the background of having the podcast and having this view on holistic education, that that was part of what made you want to write this book. Absolutely. I, you know, I wanted to put a book out there that I wish had existed when I started on this path, you know, almost 20 years ago now. Um, you know, I, I wish that that someone had sat me down and said, yes, there is magic. Um, but yes, there is also more to this. And it's okay if there's more to this. And yes, there are some dangers as well. And some of those dangers look like people and some of those dangers look like, um, uh, you know, harmful claims. Um, some of those uh, dangers are simply, um, you know, doing unwitting harm by uh, taking from oppressed groups or having, uh, you know, unquestioned conversations about where things come from and things like that. And I so I wanted to create a book because, um, you know, I call it the Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft because, you know, a, a lot of people have this narrative that so many people come to our community from Christianity 
and you know we're burned out by christianity and so we're doing almost sort of what the myth of the burning times tells us is that we're we're running off into the woods to be a witch and running away from being persecuted in the christian church and the thing is sure i get part of that but the second largest religious group in the united states and for the most part around the world is uh, are are people that do not have a religion that that uh, are somewhere on the spectrum of agnostic, atheist, or um, what statistics tell us is the largest part of that group are people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious. And when you talk to these people, when you talk to the folks that consider themselves spiritual but not religious, it's folks that want spirituality, folks that have left, you know, their initial religious home. Sure, these people might have been Christian, but they might have been all sorts of other things. Um, but they have backed away from the formalized uh, religions of their upbringing because of conversations about race, because of conversations about uh, homophobia, marriage equality, about trans rights, about um, charity, about what it means to be charitable, about economic inequality, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they're they're much more socially conscious uh, and want a version of spirituality that doesn't ignore what's important to them socially and culturally. And these people are coming into our community and they are wanting to learn and they're wanting to learn in good faith. But a lot of a lot of that is saying, okay, well, I want to learn about crystals. I want to learn about herbs. I want to learn about magic. I want to learn about all of these things. But I, I also want to to not feel like I have to check my uh, scientific mind at the door. I don't want to have to feel like I have to check my socially conscious mind at the door, you know, that kind of thing. So I wrote this book for people that I, I guess are like me, people who who believe in magic wholeheartedly and believe that we are, um, you know, that, that magic is a birthright, that we are magical beings, that the world is filled with magic and that we can have it and that we can access it, but not at the expense of, you know, the rest of ourselves. Uh, you know, I think so for so long, um, so many conversations around magical scholarship have been, okay, well, here is your conversation about magical scholarship, and you kind of have to check a lot of things at the door. You know, you you don't ask too many uncomfortable scientific questions. Don't ask too many uncomfortable uh, psychological questions or sociological questions. Um, you know, that that doesn't lend itself for magical thinking, and I don't believe that in the slightest. Like I said before, uh, you know, my understanding of magic has always been that it's part of the natural world. And if it's part of the natural world, you know, that means that that we can incorporate natural science and psychology and sociology and history and art and, you know, astronomy and things into it uh, and realize that there is no separation between these things. And so, you know, I wrote the book in the hopes that someone can read it and come away with the, you know, enough information that when they read their next book on witchcraft, uh, when they read their next um, uh, book on paganism or magical thinking or something, they'll just be a little bit more critical about what they're reading and the kinds of information that it presents and, you know, what whether or not, uh, 
they should they should let it all in, <laughs> whether or not it it should be caught in some kind of filter uh, of knowledge or something like that. Um, so you know, I I I wrote it in hopes that uh, people will think that you know I <laughs> sorry you can edit some of this down. I wrote I wrote it in the hopes that it teaches sort of spiritual critical thinking skills, I guess. I think that's a great goal to have. I I think that we should all be striving to like to be the person that we needed when we were younger. And if you're going to put a book on witchcraft out there, why not make it the book that you wish you had when you were starting? That's like the perfect goal to shoot for. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this is a great starting resource. Critical thinking is so, 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 so important when you're learning about anything and especially witchcraft, because, you know, as we, we said earlier in the conversation, there is no unifying governing body that says, you know, yes, this is canon and no, this is not part of what we actually believe because everything is so multifaceted and there's so many flavors of paganism and witchcraft and everyone does it just a little bit different. Um, and even for, for people who are, who aren't beginners, who are, you know, at that 201, I guess, level. Uh, this is a wonderful additional modern perspective. This is the first post-2020 witchcraft book that I have seen. So it's it's really neat to see the culture and the events that developed, you know, during that year reflected in your writing and to see that become part of the community's literary canon. Yeah, I, I was really conscious throughout that, you know, and I, I do reference directly in the book that this was written during the pandemic, during a time of massive. Uh, but it, I mean, you know, 2020 wasn't just a year of pandemic. 2020 was also a year of cultural upheaval and of social reckoning, um, dealing head on with our implicit bias and our white supremacy and our racism and our transphobia and things head on. And I I couldn't in good conscience write a book about the culture of witchcraft, the culture of the people that practice it, and not include those things because people are are smart. <laughs> people are not going to stand for it much longer. Uh, you know, people are more than just their wands. People are more than just their cauldrons. We are more than just our spirituality. Um, or at least our spirituality should be all-encompassing. Uh, and I, I think that that the last year has put a lot of things in very stark perspective for me, at least. And I was the one writing the book, so I guess that's the only opinion that matters here. Um, but, you know, it, I didn't want to fill the book with a bunch of, like, things you needed to go buy because, my God, how am I going to tell people to go buy things when so many people are out of work uh, or underemployed or working five jobs to make ends meet or you know, how am I going to sit here and tell you that, that uh, you know, you should practice X, Y, and Z borrowing heavily from oppressed cultures when we're at the same time, you know, having a heavy, heavy social reckoning on the topics of race and implicit bias. And, and every day we see in the news yet another story of uh, this country, this continent's uh, history of uh, white supremacy of uh, oppression of harm done to communities of color. Um, 
to indigenous populations. I mean, you know, how could I in good conscience write a book that ignored those things? And the thing is, even if I didn't like reference it and then not mention the sticky parts, I feel like not saying the quiet part out loud at least gives tacit approval of certain things. And that's just not what I have ever been comfortable doing. Like I said, you know, I started my podcast because I was like, well, if we don't ever actually say the thing out loud that we're tiptoeing around, then are we actually having a conversation about it? You know, are we really addressing it or are we just saying, well, that that was good enough. That was that was a good enough conversation. That's that's not good enough for me. I'd, I'd rather say, hey, you know what? White supremacy is bad. <laughs> it's bad. It's a bad thing. Yeah. Like you said earlier about the burning times, if you are silent about it when you could speak up if you are letting it slide then you are complicit in letting it continue yes and we're starting to demand these things in our community conversations we're we're demanding this social awareness and social responsibility it's only a matter of time before that's demanded from published literature as well and it should be so this is a really really good start um you know maybe yours will be the the first in that wave who knows i i think that would be wonderful um <laughs> this is this is the first book where i've seen gatekeeping and cultural appropriation and watching out for bullshit in the community and ethical sourcing and upg discussed in detail in one book it's absolutely incredible these are things that previously had been sort of com- confined i guess to online conversations it's oh it's it's what those kids on the internet are doing and it's like no this is the modern pagan community this is the modern witchcraft community this is what people are talking about and it needs to be discussed and it needs to be out there you know in front of the eyes of people who maybe aren't part of these conversations so that they know what's going on yeah i mean i'm glad you brought up some of those other points like you know the entire section on upg uh unverified personal gnosis um you know like you said it it, for a very long time that was a topic confined to tumblr to blogs to social media discourse you know why am why am i right and why are you wrong because of my upg well if i've if all I've done is read my Scott Cunningham and my Silver Raven Wolf and my Uncle Bucky's Big Blue Reader, and then I come into the online community or I go to my first pagan event and somewhat suddenly people are talking about, you know, UPG this and, and you know, all these other things. I'm like, where did all this come from? I, I don't feel like we're preparing people to be inside of this community if we don't ever reference those things in black and white. So I I hoped to at least give a a primer on some of these subjects and to set people up for success uh, so that they know what these things are and they know how to research these things going forward. And they know some of the warning signs to watch out for when maybe a claim is taken too far or uh, if something kind of smells bad uh, and, and, you know, to trust that instinct and what to do whenever something smells bad, you know, how to react to that. Uh, so, you know, like I, like I said, it, it's I, I didn't feel like I could write a book like this in good conscience and not include discourse about just simply what it means to be inside of this community you know, as a as a person, <laughs> as a as a living, breathing human being inside of this community, because it's 
it's more than just a practice. It's a community of people practicing alongside you. And just because you're a solitary practitioner um, doesn't mean that you are not still part of a community um, and that you are not still part of greater discourse in some kind of way. And and so, yeah, I wanted to include those things in black and white because I feel like if I don't, I'm continuing a legacy of not saying things out loud. And I just couldn't do that. That seems very sensible to me. And it's it's good to include these things that, you know, previously have just been part of sort of the the oral tradition of the modern community, because otherwise, how are they going to get out there? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, and if the first time you you hear about UPG is someone telling you that you're doing something wrong because of their UPG, I, I what do you do with that? <laughs> What do you do with that? <laughs> I don't, you know, we don't ever write some of these things down in black and white, and I don't really know why. I don't know if it's because we think they make us look silly or they don't make us look very good or, you know, we're we're afraid to be the one to say it in black and white and then, you know, have to answer for it online or something. I don't know. I don't know why we don't say some of the things that we do. I really don't. Um, but but yet these are the things that build, I mean, these are the things that fuel our discourse. These are the things that fuel our conversation, that that carry our community forward. So why not write about it? Why not let that be available for, for people that are interested in the community? I mean, let them let them know everything, you know, get get all the laundry out there, dirty or otherwise. Exactly. And I mean, like we said before, there there has been this sort of reluctance to, you know, to open ourselves up to you know, possible ridicule from the rest of the community or, you know, for people to go, oh, well, that's just something the kids are talking about online. That's not a thing with the thing now. And also, um, you know, we there has been a, re a reluctance, I guess, to say things out loud or put things in print that might not make our community look good because we've mm -hmm. had to struggle against all of these other stigmas for so long that we're reluctant to say anything that just doesn't paint that, you know, oh, we're nice people, really. We're accepting. We don't hurt anybody. You know, we're just existing in love and light. And then there's a, others of us over here with our hex jars going, <laughs> let me explain you something. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is good to show all of our faces, you know, even the bad ones, sometimes especially the bad ones, because otherwise, how do you know what to look out for? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. I also really liked that you uh, that you took on the difficult subjects of the quote unquote hereditary superpowers. That's <laughs> a, a pet peeve of mine. And the idea of having realistic expectations for what magic can actually do. I feel so often that uh, people who have sort of come in through pop culture, I guess, which is fine. Yeah. That's how most of us come to this, I think. We see something that, you know, interests us in a show or a book or a movie, and we're like, hey, I want to know more about this. And that's cool. It doesn't matter how you got here. It just matters that you're here. But they might come in with this idea that, oh, you know, magic is a lot flashier or has more immediate and tangible results than it really does. And, you know, the reason why we don't have shows about what witchcraft is actually like is, like you said in your book, because it's usually kind of boring to watch. <laughs> but I'm so glad that you addressed that. And the way you addressed it is hilarious. I really enjoyed that whole passage. <laughs> I think folks are, are really going to resonate with that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I... 
even if you don't come to this community or to this path through media in some way, though who doesn't, but even if you come to it through social media, if you even if even if you're just simply interested by what you've seen online, so many of the practitioners out there that put themselves on social media kind of make themselves out to be super witches. You know, their their magic is almost akin to what you see on TV. They're the most powerful psychics. They're the most powerful mediums. They they have fantastical healing powers, or they you know they they make these big claims. And I I get it. I mean, I get it. You want your expert on witchcraft to be very, very good at witchcraft. And what does being very, very good at witchcraft mean? Well, we've been conditioned to think that it means you have a record of successful spells cast. It means, you know, we think that it means, you know, I I have a I have tea with a dead girl that that died, you know, up the road every Friday night, and we watch horror movies together. You know, we we have this idea that our experts on witchcraft have to be super witches. The thing is, that doesn't really hold up in other kinds of communities. Uh, you know, if some of the experts that I know on uh, construction, well, they they know how to get themselves out of a scrape, you know, what to do when things go wrong. Uh, and they tell you, okay, so here's what you need to watch out for when you start building this, you know, make sure your wood is like this because, you know, oh, I've screwed this up before. You know, experts are simply people that have messed up more than anyone else and have come out the other end and not stopped, you know? I mean, uh, I, I think that, that we have uh, sort of a skewed idea of what makes someone an, an, an expert. So that was part of what I wanted to put in the book is kind of tear that down a little bit too about the concept of expertise. I'm not going to claim to be the most psychic witch out there. I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you that if you read my book, you are going to summon hurricanes and, and you know, heal the sick and, and uh, win the lottery or, you know, have all sorts of luck or things like that. I'm not going to promise you any of that. I am going to promise that you are going to come away with uh, skills, with critical thinking, with a uh, with the ability to walk a magical path that feels personal, that feels sound, uh, and that is organic enough to grow with you as you grow as a person. Um, but I'm certainly not going to tell you that you're going to you're you're going to suddenly join the X-Men. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. I'm also just picturing the mention of the 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 record of spells cast successfully. And oh, here comes Firelight. He's 51 and 0 with successfully cast. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that'd be hysterical. Uh, but yes, I think admitted fallibility is so, so important. If if someone is claiming to be perfect or to have never made a mistake or to be like the be all end all expert on anything I am immediately suspicious of that person and the more so when it's about paganism or witchcraft because it's like are you though yeah I think that uh you know and I say this pretty outright in the book in multiple places but I'm like you know we we kind of have this 
there's this really pretty pink and purple idea online. And I say pink and purple because I feel like it's always in memes that are pink and purple for some reason. Um, But, uh, you know, there's this sort of pretty soft, sweet idea that pervades the community that like, oh, magic is only limited by your limitation. It's only limited by what you can think and what you can dream. And that's kind of where you start getting into like, the law of attraction and that kind of stuff and and thoughts or things and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, if that's true, then why aren't witches making it like their job to win the lottery every week? You know, I mean, witches, magical people live on the same planet that everybody else does. We have the same laws of physics everyone else does. Gravity rules us just like everything else does. I mean, you know, bad stuff happens to us too, and we can't control it, and we can't see it coming. So, okay, so if all that's true, then obviously there's some kind of limit to all of this, right? I mean, otherwise, we would have complete control over the weather, we would never have a bad hair day, and we would have all the money in the world, or we would have all of whatever it is that we need at all times. But just simply scrolling through social media tells me that our community has just as much problem with economic inequity and racism and homophobia and, uh, you know, all, all you know, job insecurity and all sorts of other things, just like everybody else does. So, OK, so magic has limits. So if we can at least all agree that magic has limits, then let's just say that. And let's have a realistic conversation so that when people come into this community and they start practicing, they're not overpromised. They're not told that everything is going to fix itself. They're, they are told that if they want to change their life, they're going to actually have to put in some sweat equity. You know, they're going to have to do some work, some real physical work. Uh, you know, the, the wand waving and the candle lighting and the chanting and all of that, that's not going to change anything if you don't get out there and do something. You know, the easiest example is a job spell. You can sit there and do all the, you can light all the green candles you want. You can do all the chanting. You can summon the names of all the different job deities or whatever it is. But if you don't put out any applications, you're, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a job. There is no job spell in the world that is going to just have someone walk up to your door and say, hey, I don't know why I thought this, but do you want a job? Do, Do you want a job? Like, that's just not how this works. So if it's not how it works, then how does it work? You know, what does it do? What can we make it do? Um, And what can't it do? You know, where are you going to have to fill in the gaps? Where are you going to have to to put in some time and effort and energy? And I think if people know that up front, they'll be more appreciative that they weren't, you know, lied to or overpromised or, you know, made to feel a little dumb after the fact by the fact that they thought that this was going to be one thing. And then it's not. And then, okay, so, you know, when you're interacting with other people, do you have to pretend? Because that's kind of, I feel like what a lot of conversations were for a really long time is you kind of had to maybe pretend. (laughs) You know, I talk about this a little bit too. Like, was it actually a demon that jumped out of your carpet and ran around your living room? Or was it as though a demon jumped out of your carpet and ran around your living room? You know, did you actually see X, Y, or Z? Or was it as though you experienced X, Y, or Z? And just having some of that just real world conversation, just some of that honest dialogue, I feel like is missing. And I feel like it it's, it's needed. And I don't think it makes us any less magical. I don't think it makes this community any less interesting or worthy or valid if we just say, oh, no, this is this is what happened. Okay, cool. Great. That's what I experienced, too. Mostly because, like, I'm like, well, that's never happened to me. 
am I am I doing something wrong? Am I not? I oh, I I've never floated off the ground. Uh, am I am I not a witch? <laughs> I think we all have that moment at some point where it's like, wait, everyone else seems to be having these these really amazing mystical transformative experiences, and I haven't experienced that yet. I'm not talking directly to a god. You know, I'm I'm not out there like summoning spirits and making things fly around my home and having talking animals help me with my chores. What am I doing wrong? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you're you're fine. You're you're doing okay. You're doing amazing, sweetie. <laughs> I mean, I actually use that same job spell example when I'm talking to people about how magic works. That leg work it matters. It is magic is nothing if you don't back it up with some kind of practical action. Because you can you can toss as many coins into that wishing well as you want, but if you're not willing to roll up your sleeves and work to make that wish happen, you may as well have pitched it into a pile of manure. It's not going to help you. Um, I've always seen magic as sort of like, yes, it's it's pushing energy around to an extent, but I also see it as like you're influencing probability, whether it's to have something happen or to have something not happen, it's the probability of the desired outcome for a situation. And sometimes what you can do with magic is enough to make that thing happen or not happen. And sometimes even if you double the probability that that thing happens, you know, going from 1% to 2% is not going to make much of a difference. Um, you mentioned in your book that circumstances matter. Spells can only do so much. And if the circumstances aren't conducive to success, it's just not going to happen. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, you're not going to summon a blizzard in the middle of July if you live in the northern hemisphere. You're just you're just not, you know, I mean, and and again, so if you just if we can at least all agree that there are some limitations here, then we can start having honest conversations and we can maybe mitigate potential harm. We can soften some of the claims being made and we can, you know, cast a wider net to make sure that people feel included and embraced. And as part of this community, I feel like so many people are starting to run from certain labels because it's like, well, you know, there's this measuring rod for what it means to be a witch or there's this measuring rod for what it means to be a pagan and you have to be able to do X, Y, or Z or you have to have had X, Y, or Z experience and I haven't had any of those. And and am I valid? Do I not count? Uh, and and the thing is, I think that, um, you know, I, I just, I feel like people need to know that they count and they matter and they're part of this. And it's okay if you haven't experienced something because, it, it doesn't mean that that experience didn't happen to that person in the way that they said it was, uh, in the way that they said it did, but it's okay if it hasn't happened to you. And it doesn't make your magic any less real. It doesn't make you any uh, less of a spiritual person um, if, if, you know, if these things haven't happened to you. If you can't honestly say, you know, I, I talk uh, very candidly in the book, you know, about the difference between me and my husband. My husband believes 100% believes that he sees ghosts on a regular basis. He sees the ghost of his deceased father, he's seen ghosts in homes that we've lived in. I I cannot honestly say <laughs> that I have ever seen a ghost. I have had experiences that I believe um you know contacted uh the deceased 
in in certain instances, but I've never seen a ghost. I've never been in a room where a book flew across the room. I've never, uh, you know, I've gone on ghost hunts with professional ghost hunters, and I people said that they were experiencing things that I did not experience. I did not feel those things. I did not see those things happen. Did those people see those things? Did those people feel those things? Was it as though they saw them or felt them? I, I believe that they did, but I didn't. And it's not like I'm less valid. It's not like I'm not a pagan. It's not like I'm not a witch. It's not like I haven't been here for 19 years. It's just that, you know, I haven't experienced that. But it doesn't mean that my spirituality is any less real. It doesn't mean that my connection to the divine is any less valid. Um, and I think just it's it's time we start putting that down on paper in black and white so that the average dabbler can come into this community and have honest dialogue and know that they too are valid. 100% agree. I mean, we, we need to tell people when they're coming in. It's like, look, you are going to look back on where you are now and, you know, five years from now, you're going to be miles away, you know, mm -hmm what you believe will change and grow with you. Your experience is going to look different from everyone else's because your journey is different from everyone else's. Your life is different from everyone else's. You know, you don't have to do all the things or know all the things or study all the subjects to be a proper witch. That is so important to tell people just so they have these realistic expectations. And so, you know, they're maybe not so hard on themselves when things inevitably don't go the way they expect. So I think it's it's wonderful to see that in your book. And I think that that's going to resonate with and reassure a lot of readers. Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I felt good reading it. It was well, like, oh, yay, someone else, <laughs> someone else is <laughs> out there saying this. That's, that's very good. And I, I love your sources section as well. It, it was absolutely glorious. It includes, you know, the citations for each chapter and online sources that anyone can find, not just go out and find these other books. So just, oh my God, a good cited sources and like further reading <laughs> section is my jam. And this one is wonderful. I love so, a footnote. I'm I'm yes. obsessed with the footnote. I will say I'm I'm very blessed because my I I was published by a larger publisher so that we they did have the resources for a solid fact check. <laughs> so, you know, it's it was it was nice because that's that isn't very common uh in a lot of nonfiction work. Um, just industry-wide, not just in the pagan community, but industry-wide, there aren't a lot of, uh, you know, nonfiction books are fact-checked a lot less than people think they are. Um, but my editor and I really kind of pushed to make sure that, like, oh, dates were checked and things. I, I remember there was a there's a spell in the back of the book that, like, uses hand sanitizer and you light the hand sanitizer on fire. And she's like, okay, so uh, my editor was like, okay, so we're going to have to run this by uh, the folks in the science team just to make sure that, like, when we light hand sanitizer on fire that there's no chance that there's like you know some sort of toxic chemical or residue or smoke or something like that that could be given off okay so we we do, i don't know if we can include that yet so we're gonna have to so i was very grateful for that <laughs> and it led to a more robust uh uh resources section because uh you know we kept including more facts and more citations and you know every every source is cited every quote is cited everything is cited so i, I love a robust citation Ah, delicious, delicious citations. Oh, them sources. So, so good. Love it. Absolutely love it. Ah, 
So real quick before we uh, wrap up, there was one thing I wanted to go back to. Um, in your book, you talk about like mundane and minor magics, which I just loved. <laughs> I always like to say everyone has one nearly useless, silly superpower. So what is yours? Oh, God. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Um, whew. One mundane, silly superpower. Um, uh, you know, I give an example in the book about like the guy that can always make really good coffee. I tend to make really good coffee. Um, my plants don't die, uh, though I will say mo most of the stuff in my house are succulent, so it's real hard to kill those. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. Oh, you know what? Uh, I tend to be able to know where a, a good sale is. And I think that comes from my grandmother who, who, who could always sort of like spot a good, uh, a good deal. I can usually like, uh, kind of suss out where a good sale is. I think. I don't know. I think that's a fairly useful superpower. <laughs> <laughs> That's one I would like to have. Mine, mine is that I always know approximately like what time it is within about 15 minutes, even if I don't have. Oh a God, clock. I would love that power. I am. I. Oh man, I need to. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I would be perpetually late. I like to be very early to things. Um, uh, on time is late for me. Um, but I, 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 I am beholden to a clock. I wish I had that power. You are. I. You. I am envious of you. Well, don't be too envious because even with my stupid superpower, I'm always 15 minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always fashionably late. I have to try and shoot for arriving at some place 30 minutes early just to get there on time. <laughs> Are we related? It's... I feel like everyone in my family. Is <laughs> I think that's why I'm so obsessed with being punctual because my family was perpetually late to everything. And we were mm -hmm. always like, the family that's late. Uh, and I, as an adult, I was like, I am not going to be that. I am not going to get those looks. I am going to be early or on time, but never late. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds like my husband's family. They they call it their own family standard time. Um, and that is leaving for a place when you're supposed to be arriving. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've may have inherited some of that, but I've always been like that, so I can't really blame them. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. You are just an absolute delight to talk to. Oh, thank you. This was so much fun. You have such a great show, uh, and, oh, and I, I love what you do. I also love the name. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it came up on a whim, and I'm just glad that no one else called it first. <laughs> so listeners, I strongly recommend like one step short of a demand that you go and pre-order your copies of the Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft. Those pre-order numbers are so important to publishers. So let's help set fire up for the future success that he so richly deserves and make sure you go get one. So before we go, Fire, do you want to go ahead and uh, plug your socials and the podcast so people know where to find you? 
Absolutely. Um, so you can subscribe to my podcast, Inciting a Riot, wherever podcasts are downloaded, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your podcatcher of choice is. Uh, if you'd like to connect with me, you can head over to incitingariot.com. That's the home for the show, uh, for all of the show notes and the occasional blog post. And of course, you can find me on most forms of social media at Inciting a Riot. Uh, and I look forward to chatting with you. Fantastic. Well, folks, until next time, this is Brie and Firelight reminding you to stay safe, wear your mask, get vaccinated if you can, and dabble responsibly. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Garen on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hex.